This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If I learned one thing in the last year, it's that falling into debt can happen to anyone. Luckily, I heard about the ISI the Insolvency Service of Ireland. Their professional advisors can help you restructure or even write off your debt. The first thing they said to me was, every debt problem has a solution. I can still feel the relief. So if you're worried, visit their website backontrack.ie or free text get help to 50015. The ISI. Together, we'll get you back on track. Own Country, Yorkshire Post's political podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and this week we're focusing on HS2. It's a controversial subject that we've covered a lot in the pages of the Yorkshire Post, and it's been dragging on for years, and it's one of our most popular subjects we get letters on, both for and against. Today I'm joined by Duncan Simpson, Research Director at the Taxpayers Alliance, and Henry Morrison, Director at the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. Hello both. Hello. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a bit of a um, busy week in news for HS2 yet again. We've had the report from Lord Berkeley out who um, was working on Doug Oakby's review of the scheme. Um, he's now no longer on it, as many of them are, and we're waiting for the review. But he's come out and said basically that this is a money pit for the government that shouldn't be going ahead and that Parliament has been misled over the scheme. <coughs> Um, I'd like to start with Duncan. Can you set out for us, Duncan, the Taxpayers Alliance kind of view on HS2 in general? Sure. So we've always taken the view that um, HS2 is a, is a white elephant. Um, it should be uh, scrapped, as, scrapped as soon as possible. And we think that for, for, for numerous reasons. Um, I mean, it sort of dreamt up in the uh, dying days of the Labour administration. I think uh, legislation was 2008, 2009 when it first came about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the initial cost estimates were substantially lower than they are um, today. I mean, there's obvious reasons for that. Initially, it was seemed to be just the London to Birmingham uh, transport link, and then obviously it was extended, um, or rather the plans were extended up to Manchester and Leeds. Sure, because um, that's gone up, hasn't it? It was first around 50, wasn't it? 50 billion. A bit, bit lower than that, a bit lower. A bit lower, and then it's gone up to 88, and now the most recent report, and the Prime Minister during the election also said we're going to look at kind of above 100. That's, that's right. So um, before going into this uh, review, which is to be um, I think reported very, very soon. I think the government <laughs> That's what we're told. Well, well, indeed, we'll wait and see. I mean, so the government sort of uh, fessed up with it being sort of between 81 and 88 billion pounds in 2019 prices. Um, obviously, we've always 
taking the view that um, going above 100, 100 billion pounds is um, much more likely, I think on the basis of that, that, that does seem that does seem possible. Um, so the, 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 the costs are seen pretty, pretty, pretty egregious. Um, and there's, there's numerous reasons for that, I mean, one of which um, yeah, the, 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 the nature of constructing a very high-speed rail line, particularly in, you know, through London and the southeast of England, it required a lot of tunnelling. The idea that you can use 400-kilometre-hour trains to, to do that, um, it's just not viable. If it were the case of, you know, even using TGV rolling stock, which is sort of the high-speed rail in France, that's a much more, well, I wouldn't say economically viable, but a much more um, uh, you know, parsimonious way of spending, spending taxpayers' cash. So I think a lot, of the, a lot of the actual sort of construction arguments are difficult to sustain on the basis of the current budget, um, and that's why the, the costs have been escalating over the years. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you say about tunnelling and things like that. I was speaking to um, Robert Goodwill, Yorkshire um, Tory MP, a few days ago, who was HS2 minister previously, and he said, you know, one of the reasons the costs has gone up is... Um, with Chilterns, for example, um, but you know that's that's the balance of those environmental concerns, I suppose. And um, Henry, I'd like to hear what you think. So, I mean, the reality about what HS2 is is it's not a transport project in isolation. It's yeah. part of an economic commitment to rebalance the country, including particularly the north of England and London and southeast. So, George Osborne, who supported it uh, when he was in government, he uh, in fact proposed it from opposition. That's where the idea first came from. Um, and it was based on the principle that there is a capacity issue on the network. And I, I do think the name is unhelpful. I think that's probably one thing we would agree about, which is that I, I don't think actually having a high-speed railway for its own sake is a good thing for the UK. So this is something we get every time, isn't it? You say HS2 and people go, oh, people just want to get to, from Leeds to London 15 minutes quicker or whatever, but you're saying that's not, that's not the idea. So the point is you're building a new railway line, so you build it at a speed which is commensurate with what is possible in today's engineering terms and, mm -hmm. and is good value for money on the basis that you need the capacity anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think that the the challenge you have, for instance, say between Manchester and London is that you're competing with commuters as well as freight on the West Coast Main Line. We've already upgraded the West Coast Main Line at huge public expense. We could be looking at another 15 billion, say, just to upgrade the West Coast Main Line. And you, at this point, are only getting marginal gains from doing those interventions. So our HS2 North report, which was commissioned by us and had a group of northerners who sat on it and gave us their views, experts and leaders, unlike the Okavine process, one of them uh, decided to go off and write their own reports. They all they all agreed to, to sign up to one report, which at the time we didn't think was that impressive, but now in, in light of uh, recent events, it, it seems like more of an achievement. And, and that included people who, uh, including Conservative MPs like Kevin Hollingrake, who were not being long-term supporters of HS2. So very okay. deliberately, we found people who had an open mind, actually, as well as those uh, in the north of England, of which there are many, who have very strong opinions in favour of this, like, for instance, Sir Howard Bernstein, who's the leader of, uh, was the uh, chief executive of Manchester City Council, uh, and is now, did that in a personal capacity. So what I would say is interesting is that what, when they looked at this, there isn't another comparable project that has the same benefits. You can't come up with another way of creating as much capacity as HS2 creates. And so we didn't start from a position of wanting to defend HS2 as it stands. And I think that HS2 could, and I think it will end up being significantly changed, particularly in its way it's integrated with Northern Powerhouse Rail, as we've recommended. Because if you want to achieve the economic benefits of HS2, you do need new line, upgrade solutions, like some of those that we might get onto later that the Taxpayers Alliance proposed previously, just don't provide the same economic benefits. And as well as the costs having gone up, actually the benefits were also overestimated. So 
when you now look at what's been promised in the current Conservative government's manifesto, what was done uh, by George Osborne when he was Chancellor, there's now a commitment to wider economic rebalancing through, for instance, the investment in the Royce Institute, which now exists, which is being built in Manchester, buildings in Liverpool and in Sheffield, looking at, uh, uh, for instance, the areas that we set up to focus on, more promises from Dominic Cummings of investment in R&D. And if you add the benefits of a better rail line to wider economic rebalancing, the benefits of both are enhanced. So I wouldn't diagnose, if I was a kind of doctor of uh, this, this science, kind of a doctor of uh, economic redevelopment and uh, rebalancing, just doing HS2 in isolation. I would always only do it with Northern Powerhouse Rail because the two together are much more uh, powerful than doing one alone. Because that's know, something that's been said, of course, by you know multiple critics. Um, one this week in the House of Commons for the day, this MP for Shipley, he said, you know, let's scrap this white elephant, as the taxpayers might also call it, and and put this money into the powerhouse rail and other other transport links in the north. But you're saying that can't exist just on its own. Well, the interesting point, as Alan Cook points out in his stock take, is that half of the new line that makes up Northern Powerhouse Rail is also. Uh, is HS2 line. Okay. So a lot of the new line which makes up that. So what the North hasn't done is go out and ask for a pony and just keep asking for present after present. Does that make sense? Like at Christmas time, as a child would do. We've tried to come up with a sensible, rational programme that maximises the investment that HS2 already represented. I think in an ideal world, you'd have designed Northern Powers Rail and HS2 at the same time and you'd have got the optimal outcome, if that makes sense. And I think that this pause, which has come from the Oakwood Review, could be very helpful. Because if it means that we improve HS2 Phase 2B so it's properly integrated with Northern Powerhouse Rail, I think that would be a significant benefit. And the evidence for that is quite clear. So a fifth of the benefits in the Northern Powerhouse Rail business case are actually, for instance, people from Liverpool being able to then get onto HS2 and get to Birmingham or uh, get to London uh, more easily. And so the benefits of east-west connectivity and north-south connectivity reinforce each other. The benefits of investing in something like R&D and in transport connectivity at the same time reinforce each other. And um, what we're saying is in the context of the Treasury having committed to a lot more capital investment, <coughs> the taxpayers' lines are going to have to recalibrate their thinking. So they've been working in the mindset that there are scarce resources for capital investment and we are seeking to rebalance, re, reprioritise a, a, a discrete pot of money. What we're now having a debate about, because that's what Sajid Javid's promised us in the election, what he's going to outline in the budget, is there's going to be a significant increase in spending in the north of England. And so rather than having to make choices, for instance, between... NPR and HS2 as competing projects, actually the choice is how do we maximise the investment in both and get the most outcome from doing both. And the comparable example I give is no one asked people in London to either have HS1, the line onto Paris, so the section of track that takes you to the Channel Tunnel from London and Crossrail. Okay. Um, no one said you can either have better connectivity within your economy or better connectivity in that case to the continent. And Tony Blair has made the argument, I think, before the election, I think it's quite an interesting one, that he can get from London to Paris uh, more easily than he can back to the constituency that he used to represent in the northeast of England. That constituency now is a Conservative MP. Darlington is one of those places that benefits from enhanced connectivity through run-on services on the HS2 network. So HS2 trains will go to, for instance, Preston, to a place like Carlisle, we would argue, in our work, to Darlington or Newcastle. And many of those blue wall areas will benefit from HS2. And I think that, that will hopefully focus some minds in Parliament around the fact that this project does have, as well as some clear economic benefits, a very political overtone, and I think that will help to protect it, if I'm honest, from some of the critics like Philip, who, like Lord Berkeley, 
I think I've described them as, as bottles of scotch on this topic. They've, they've got very long-held views. I, I'm a great friend of Philip's personally. I think he's great entertainment. I fundamentally disagree with him on this, and he's always held these views. So none of this is about some great new revelation that's happened in terms of HS2 or new evidence. These people always hated it. Philip's against pretty much anything like this, so it's not a surprise he doesn't like it. In the same way, Lord Barclay's a rail buff who likes tootling along on trains mm -hmm. and sees this like a Hornby set that he can talk about and write about. His report is basically a carbon copy of stuff he said to me previously. He went on the Oakley Review and seems to have learnt and listened to nothing, and that, to me, means that if those people are just playing back their old opposition, they're not going to be able to win an argument in which many of us have gone back and revisited whether HS2 is the right thing to do and actually are now making a different case to the one that was originally made because we're actually arguing for something different and the opponents are going to have to listen to that otherwise I think they're going to find that government are going to look at their views and reject them based on the fact that they're just like a bottle of scotch, aged old views that whether you like them or lump them are not going to change. Yeah, yeah it's a lot to unpack there absolutely. So but one of the things that you said there is that the taxpayers are going to have to recalibrate their view. That's something that you're looking to do, or are you are you also a bottle of old scotch? Uh, I don't have a scotch there, but um, no, we're not, not going to uh, resolve from our Fine. position on, on HS2. I mean, I, I would um, you know slightly push back on, on, on some of the points from Henry. Mm. I mean, there is indeed going to be you know a growth in long term uh, long distance train travel. Um, some of the estimates from you know initial studies in sort of 2011, 2012, they've actually come down in terms of passenger growth. Um, also, a big part of the business case for HS2 um, now, and indeed pretty much from, from, from when it was first um, presented, is in terms of the number of trains per hour. I think it's sort of 18 trains per hour. There's basically no high-speed rail line in the world which has that. You know, even the Japanese system doesn't quite have that. Um, yes, it is definitely the case that at peak time going into going to Manchester and certainly at Euston, there's um, you know pretty pretty heavy usage of the of, of the line. But actually, if you look at if you look at the numbers, so sort of peak commuting time. You know, on a on a, on a weekday weekday afternoon going out of London, a lot of passengers are lighting at Milton Keynes, which is a town about you know, thirty miles north of London. Um, so there are some some capacity issues at peak times, but sort of outside of that, that's 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 less so less so the case. Um, and you know, in as much as you know, Lord Barclay might be sort of slightly um, you know, a bottle of scotch and so forth, it's not necessarily the case that you know he has to be fully signed up to George Osborne's sort of pet project to actually go into <laughs> the go into the review. It's certainly the case to have a you know diversity of view um, of views rather on the on the view is, is perfectly perfectly reasonable. Um, where I would agree with Henry is that um, you know there's absolutely fine to have you know a much much higher degree of investment in quite a few areas of, of transport infrastructure in um, in the north. Mm -hmm. um, we obviously don't see ICY or ICY on HS2. Um, I think again the you know, connectivity issues are, are slightly 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 off the mark. I think from from recollection, I think one of the assessments of um, potential job growth in in crew in particular is that because obviously crew is going to be uh, potentially sort of one of the one of the um, sort of holding stations for a lot yeah. of the lot of the rolling stock. Um, I think I think the estimates of job growth were something like forty thousand over I mean, it's a quite a long period of time. If you look at the current workforce and crew, it's it's about that number anyway. So okay. there's there's sort of wildly optimistic mm -hmm. assessments of potential growth in in, in, in in towns in the north in the northwest in particular. Um, so yeah, so generally we sort of push back push back on, on, on some of those points. But you know we we make we've been making this case for for years and years and years, the estimates have been, you know, crept up time and time again. And sort of fundamentally, there's a philosophical difference um, between us. I mean, you know, personally, my view and that of a TPA. I mean, the idea that you know a small collection of politicians sitting down in London, um, surrounded by a small coterie of uh, mandarins, have the you know the nous and the wherewithal to 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 live with this on time and on budget is 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 for the birds. I mean, we see that time and time again in any number of areas of government spending, not least defence uh, defence spending and procurement, which Dominic Cummings seems to be. 
um, taking a scythe to in, yes. in, the, in, the, in the months ahead. Um, and we, we just, you know, we're obviously seeing that already that's the case, that HS2 is uh, once again failing to deliver the original parameters of why it was set up. And this is why, isn't it, people like Stop HS2, campaigners feel like they've been let down. When you look at when the cost keeps going up and then you, you, know, you think about the job estimates there and those changing and then the facts and figures about, about the number of trains that are going to run, it, it, it's one little thing after the other, isn't it? And I suppose you know, your argument would probably be that that doesn't take away from the fact that the whole project should go ahead, but can you see how people's trust could be kind of diminished? I think there's an element, isn't there, that we need to learn the lessons of what's gone wrong. And I think we need to implement the, and make sure that we change things. So I think on that score, I think there are lots of issues with the way the Department of Transport and the Treasury have supervised this project. Mm -hmm. I think it hasn't necessarily been done as well as it could have been. I think there was also some work done uh, by the then Cabinet Secretary that uh, our chair referred to earlier this week on the Today programme, uh, which um, fundamentally, um, that it's just harder to deliver big infrastructure in the UK. But I think we could do better. And I think one of the suggestions we've made is you integrate the delivery of Northern Powerhouse Rail and the northern section of HS2, so don't build it in the same way. Work much closer with Network Rail, uh, who do have existing expertise, and, and HS2 haven't worked effectively with Network Rail, and potentially have a model that takes more private sector delivery risks. So there are literally thousands of people working on this project who are employed, who are consultants. I think that that model maybe needs to change over time, and particularly because Phase 2B hasn't been started yet, there's no reason to build that in exactly the same way as phase one. Okay. And so I think if we could have a model that relied on the private sector providing more of the expertise and management of the project and the public sector sticking to what it does best, which is about making the decisions and prioritisation over what the outcome should be rather than over-engineering a lot of the detailed decision-making, I think that would be the right thing to do. And what's interesting is that the model that HS2 Limited are using for Phase 2A is actually very different to the model that was used for Phase 1. And so actually the current management team are not those that were responsible for many of the failures. The new chair, Alan Cook, I think has got a grip of the organisation. But I would be the first to say that at times in its existence, I'm not sure HS2 Limited has done the best job possible. And that's partly about the way the government's and officials have supervised them and their knowledge and expertise around these areas because the Department of Transport, funnily enough, doesn't employ that many engineers. Um, and never mind Don wanting more people to come into government who are weirdos, <laughs> I've just settled for a few people working in transport and infrastructure who've actually delivered some big projects. And actually sometimes when you walk around the Department of Transport, you're faced with loads of people with a very similar background to the one I have, which is no, no technical proficiency whatsoever. The difference is I don't spend my time telling people the detail of how to do their jobs to build a project like this, whereas they do, and maybe that's something that needs to change. So as well as more weirdos, uh, number 10, I'd also like to see a few people who've actually built big projects working at the heart of government. And I think if we'd had that, then this project would have been supervised very differently. Interesting. I mean, one of, one of the things that's been put to me this week is actually that we're too far down the road now to scrap it. You know, we've already said we're waiting for the overview review. We'll see what the recommendations are. My feeling is, is that if um, this dissenting report is saying that we shouldn't go ahead, then maybe the OQV report is going to say that we should, you know, if um, logic tells you, doesn't it? But if a minority report is saying one thing, the majority report is going to say the other. But let's let's wait and see. Um, I was told yesterday that the DFT hasn't actually received the review yet. I do not know if that's the case or not. Um, but to give listeners a bit of a background, we were expecting it to be released last year. It was then put off because of the election. And when I asked number 10 this week when it was going to be released, I was told there is no date set. So we're all on the edge of our seats waiting. I mean, are, are we too far down the road, do you think, Duncan? Uh, 
No, I don't think we are. I think that's, well, that's the sunk cost fallacy. So I think if you are to cancel the contracts which have already been signed, you're looking at somewhere between sort of six and nine billion pounds, which mm -hmm. have to be the outlay. Now, obviously, if the government are coming out with a release assessment between 80 and 90, 90 billion pounds, that's a pretty, pretty small fraction of you know, total um, sort of lifetime cost of constructing it. So, um, no, I think I think that's a pretty, pretty, pretty poor argument. But what so. about reputationally for the government? Because they, you know, built a lot of their election promises on delivering for the north, for example. If they cancel HS2, is that is that going to damage them electorally? Do you think? Well, I mean, as Henry's alluded to, you know, the government are, are, are very um, uh, keen on doing a lot more infrastructure spending sort of outside of outside of London, and the southeast. Um, I think, as I recall in the Tory manifesto, there was some leeway in terms of HS2. I'm not even sure if it was specifically mentioned, but no, they didn't there was quite commit less, to it. It was Northern Power High Trail. Yeah, and working with Northern leaders yeah. on deciding what to do next, yeah, which so I think is helpful to us perhaps we would argue <laughs> so on the, on the on the on the specific point of hs2 i don't think they would necessarily lose uh, lose credibility on that and you see that you know through a panoply of polling over years and years uh, across the country it's a deeply unpopular project so i mean cancellation would be um broadly supportive across the uk and that's what you'd like to see next very much absolutely henry what would you like to see next so i think what we'd like to see is is that exact kind of next step in the development of the project so not just continuation as it was before learning those lessons about what can be done better but also that proper integration of hs2 with northern powerhouse rail so if the okavia review can indicate what that would look like and how we could work towards that i think then we could get more value for money from the existing spend that's being proposed so if we are going to build the north some new railways we've not really built railways on any scale in the north of england since the victorians did it so this is quite a bold undertaking and the economic benefits of that will be significant if it can create that travel to work area that gives us the comparable success of London and the South East. Because the, the prize here is that if you roll together the cumulative benefits of improving Northern productivity, by 2050 you get a trillion pounds. Now, HS2 is a very expensive project and it will contribute part of getting to that trillion pound figure. But what is interesting is none of the economic appraisal of this railway ever took into account the fact that someone will be doing economic rebalancing of the country at the same time. In fact, it presumes in the cost estimates that if you move a job from London to Manchester, it becomes less productive because that's how the Green Book model works. Mm. So Which this may is, see being ripped up, of course. Yeah. And <laughs> so this week. the direction of travel is very much saying that if we are going to want to transform the economy, we are going to have to do some big things. And I'm not one to waste the money that's going to be spent, right? And I think my challenge to government would be, I can't find another proposal that is being costed in evidence that brings the same economic benefits in terms of the capacity increase. I don't have a particular axe to grind in that. I'm not some sort of long-term HS2 lover, but I can't find a better way of doing it. And so in the absence of something better, to cancel this with nothing else in its place potentially undermines all the other initiatives and interventions that will rebalance the British economy. And to me, that sounds like a pretty big risk to take. Whereas, in fact, if you give a lot more of the responsibility and decision-making to northern leaders to make this work, that sounds like the type of trust you should have in the north of England to take its own destiny in its own hands. And I think that, uh, as government have done such a bad job of delivering big infrastructure, you should look at how Manchester, for instance, delivered its tram network, always early, always pretty much on budget or below budget. And so I think that some of us in the regions could teach people in Whitehall about how to build big projects. Mm -hmm. We've demonstrated we can be trusted. It's time for the North to take responsibility for this railway. It's national infrastructure. 
but we should be the ones leading the way to get it built because in the end it's our kids and our businesses that are going to benefit from it and we need to take responsibility for making it happen. So should it have started in the north? Absolutely it should have and I think very practically there are some bits of HS2 that are not so glamorous like upgrading the East Coast mainline. Yeah. I mean I obviously think that's very glamorous but I realise I'm an unusual <laughs> person. Um, but Upgrading the East Coast mainline between York and Newcastle is something that needs to be done anyway. Getting it done to HS2 standards and then being able to use that before any HS2 trains get to it will have huge economic benefits. So I'm not too interested about when there are ribbons to cut for ministers. Does that make sense? If we can get some of the benefits of that HS2 spend and the related associated improvements that Network Rail have been planning to go alongside HS2 to make the most of it, if we can accelerate some of that to get the benefits earlier, to me that's what starting in the north means. Does that make sense? If we can get some benefits, for instance, of doing bits of NPR early at the same time, I'm not really fussed whether it was originally HS2 or originally NPR. If it benefits communities in the north of England, and I think to meet the Don Cummings test from his uh, blog post last week, can be delivered in five years within the lifetime of this parliament, then it becomes part of their re-election strategy. And I think if you want to put some foundations under that blue wall, now's the time to start working on this because if you simply uh, look at these individual ideas in isolation they don't make a lot of sense I would agree with that argument but if you take the cumulative benefit of doing HS2 Northern Powerhouse Rail and the rest of the Northern Powerhouse project all together then you can see some quick wins in the next five years but most importantly every penny of that contributes to that long-term work of rebalancing the economy mm -hmm. and so you can get to that holy grail of what's good politics is actually good economics and I think we obviously think we've got a, a good package to sell, right? Um, and I think that certainly the fact that, I think Jim O'Neill said this, said this week, that uh, everyone down here was starting to talk with a northern accent. And I think uh, he's obviously picked up something that I wouldn't hear any being very, very infrequently, that, that the Westminster bubble has realised that the centre of political geography of the Conservative Party has moved to the north of England. That means all the battleground seats that Labour need to retake to ever be a viable party of government again are in the north of England. And once Brexit's no longer an issue, once we've left, uh, and once uh, Labour have a leader that is half credible, suddenly those seats are no longer going to be easy wins for a Conservative Prime Minister. And unless uh, those in number 10 can make real commitments that are going to deliver something, they're not going to hold on to those seats beyond one parliament. And I think they realise that. And that's why I think it would be very unlikely that one of the biggest projects which benefits the north of England, Northern Powerhouse Rail, with HS2 as a package, would be the first thing that was picked apart and most importantly Northern Powerhouse Rail is really only doable because HS2 exists so there's a really difficult existential question for a Prime Minister who's promised that NPR is a priority to cancel HS2 without a way of delivering NPR never mind the benefits of HS2 itself and for that reason we're not overconfident but we are absolutely pushing ahead along with Northern leaders as part of the Connecting Britain coalition because I think business people and our civic leaders are really clear they're going to make the case to the public about this because they think it's really important and they've got to win that argument in public opinion I agree with that that if this project can't demonstrate that it's got public support I do think those like who I oppose on this issue like the taxpayers alliance are always going to have a way in because they're always going to be able to argue that it is a white elephant but we oppose that point of view and we're going to try and win that argument in public as well. So I suppose my last question really then for, for you Duncan is if 
if HS2 is scrapped, how are we going to address this issue of you know this north-south divide, this economic imbalance? How are we going to fix that? What what's the proposed line to think on that? So we think there's there's numerous transport projects which could be which could be done in place of that, as Henry alluded to, you know, the electrification of um, um, East Coast, obviously the West Coast uh, mainline as well as going through a similar similar process. Um, we're not you know opposed to NPR. I mean, we had our Great British Transport Competition, which is sort of a compilation <laughs> of entries from people uh, all over the country, um, and that had some like fifty projects. Um, which vary from sort of cycle schemes to electrification to road improvements as well, and that came to a figure sort of below 50 billion pounds. Now, at the time of the publication of our report, which was sort of April, April last year, that was sort of the that was sort of the working estimate from the government, which was I think was about 56, 56 billion pounds. Um, so we're not opposed to more infrastructure spending. Uh, we just think there are much more uh, effective ways to do this, um, and I think particularly the the the, the argument put forward sort of much more regularly by those who are in favour of it in terms of the wider economic benefits. Um, again, we, we, we push back on that quite severely. I mean, I think it was Philip Hammond, remember him, when he was, uh, when, he was <laughs> when he was Transport Secretary, I think in 2011, he was speaking to a select committee. And he made the point that if the benefit-cost ratio, which basically means that, you know, uh, uh, one pound of taxpayers' money being spent delivers one pound and something more or something less, if it was between one pound, well, one and 1.5, um, then that would cause sort of real concerns to, to, to the government. We're, we're pretty much there. I think there was an estimate towards the end of last year from another rail expert, which put it at sort of 0.8, which effectively means that you know one pound spent is now is now is now less money than that. Now Henry is correct to make the point that that was obviously before the time of um, you know, the current administration being much more robust and putting out the, mm. the view that we need to do some splurging on um, infrastructure across across um, the northeast and northwest. Um, but nevertheless, the argument has been diminishing. The benefits have been diminishing over the years, and you see that through numerous reports. And actually, you know, in as much as ostensibly it is, it is beneficial for much of the North. I mean, there was a House of Lords um, committee report a, a couple of years back, which said that well, actually, quite a few of the benefits will actually just be accruing, um, not not majority position, but sort of too much to London, which mm -hmm. obviously sort of flies in the face of the whole rationale of the project yeah, in the first place. Yeah. Um, so it's those it's those two, you know, twin size in terms of there's a declining overall benefit, and that's been evidenced by, by numerous studies, um, as well as, you know, sort of the accidental benefit to London rather than um, the original intention of, of, of why it was uh, uh, dreamt up in the first place. Well, I think it's a ride that's going to run on and on. Thank you so much for joining me both. Thank you so much for joining us on Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post's political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. Please do leave us a review. Make sure you share the podcast and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a fortnight.